0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. I entreat you, dear, and I entreat Cinticia, to agree in the Lord. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ.
0: Thank you, Libby. So uh, every now and then I'll remind uh, all of us, including myself, that the most repeated command in the Bible is do not fear. Uh, It's actually stated in one way or another 365 times uh, total in the Old and New Testament. That means one for every day of the year except for leap year, which means that that, that one time every four years, you get a free pass on freaking out about the future. <laughs> but do not fear. 365 times in the Bible. It's a struggle, though, isn't it? You know, consensus in the mental health community and among teenage, ec- teenager experts Uh, is that teenagers, especially in our part of the world, are more anxious and afraid and worried about the future than they've ever been. Uh, I just got a a note to this effect from uh, our senior high uh, director, Kyle Banks, uh, about what uh, is beneath the fears of young men and women, teenagers today, middle schoolers, high schoolers. Uh, One is a fear, according to Kyle, of the future. Am I going to be able to make it on my own? Another fear is the fear of loneliness. Will my family ever understand me or empathize with my situation? FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, which is is only exacerbated by the current social media culture where it's very easy to notice as you're scrolling through everybody else's highlight reels, what parties you've been left out of, what friend groups you're not included in, and so on. And so, there's this fear of loneliness. There's a fear of rejection. If I really let people know who I was, the things I'm afraid of, the things I'm I'm passionate about, will I be rejected? Will I get bullied? Will I be mistreated? Will I be ignored? Will I be overlooked? Teenagers also, according to Kyle, are afraid of failure. Will I get substandard grades? Will I not be able to make it into the college or the kind of college that my parents expect me to make it into? Will I not make the team or get a part in the play or make the yearbook staff and so on? So that's even at the beginning of life where fear and worry and anxiety about the future is a big, big thing. Anxiety, worry, is an equal opportunity affliction, isn't it? Because it's not just at the beginning of life, it's also at the end of life. I was actually in a conversation with several uh, senior citizens a while ago. And uh, by senior citizens, I mean people over 110. So um, But truly, uh, a group of very honest, transparent senior citizens. And one of my questions was, what are you afraid of most at this stage in your life? And one of the women uh, in the group said, I'll tell you this, I'm not afraid of being dead. I'm just afraid of what I'm going to have to go through in order to get there. Beginning of life, the end of life, and also the middle of life. A little bit of self-disclosure here. I'm afraid all the time that something's going to happen to my kids, all the time, especially now that they're both behind the wheel. One of them's living this summer in New York City all by herself, working with asylum seekers in post-traumatic situations, high-risk, etc. I worry every time my wife gets in her car, uh, especially if she goes on a road trip, uh, that something's going to happen, that a drunk driver will um, create havoc on our world. Um, I worry that one day I'm going to get Alzheimer's. People who are closest to me know this because it runs in our family, and I just turned 50. Uh, I worry sometimes that my ministry is not going to be well-received. Uh, I'm always cognizant of this study that the church expert Tom Rayner did a few years ago where he surveyed members of churches all over the United States and He was asking them about what they expect of their pastors, Uh, and between things like preaching and preparing sermons and counseling and visitation and reading and learning and all the things in leading a team and, and, and constructing a vision and implementing vision and overseeing a staff and all the things that pastors are responsible for, Tom Rainer concluded, based on the survey feedback that he got, that the average senior pastor is expected to work 116 hours a week by his congregants. In order to get it all done. Now, I I don't serve a church that's that demanding, thankfully, but I do fear not living up to people's expectations. I fear that one day I'll blow it, that in a moment of weakness I will say those five words in front of a couple thousand people that will completely ruin my ministry for the rest of my life. It only takes, if I said three words right now, they're right in my, they're in my brain right now. If I said them right now, I'd be out of ministry for the rest of my life. I fear those kinds of moments. What are you afraid of? Paul was afraid of nothing. Nothing made Paul afraid. He was in prison as he writes this letter. He's facing a certain death. And all he can talk about is joy and worry-free living. How does he get there? And so what I want to do is just explore the anatomy of worry, of fear, of anxiety, and uh, see what the gospel has to do with it when we locate our worries and when we locate our fears inside the, the context of the gospel as Paul does. So I want to explore that through three questions. Why do we worry? How do we confront worry, and what about our worst-case scenarios? And so, first question, why do we worry? We worry, Paul says, because we are unreasonable people. We don't think well. You know, Alan Jacobs just came out with this excellent book called How to Think. Uh, It's it's this, you know, sort of, you know, short book that, that, that masterfully sort of encourages the reader to use your brain. Because sometimes the the very first assumption that you make about reality is actually not the truth. Explore all the facts, explore all the angles around whatever issue it is that you're exploring, use your brain, think reasonably, and you'll likely land with healthier and truer conclusions. And Paul says similar things here. Let your reasonableness, he says, be known to all. Why would He use the word reasonableness? You know, He's talking about our expectations. What do we expect out of life? What we expect out of life is going to uh, determine our actual experience of life. What do we expect out of life specifically in a fallen world? So, C.S. Lewis explored this question this way. He he, he's basically uh, writing uh, about how our expectations of, of what life is supposed to give us will govern how we experience life. And he, he writes this If somebody shows you a hotel room, you haven't been in there yet, and you haven't had a chance to look in the hotel room yet, but if, if somebody is you know, leading you to a hotel room and they tell you that it's a honeymoon suite, You're going to expect when they open the door, Lewis says, that there will be plush carpet, spa, champagne, and if those things aren't there, you're going to be disappointed if you're told it's a honeymoon suite. But if you've been told before the door opens that it's a jail cell, you're actually going to be delighted to find even modest comforts in that room. It's all about expectations. And in the world of affluence in which we live, and by the way, if you can expect to have a meal, reliably have a meal, one, two, three times a day, if you can reasonably expect, you know, by virtue of where you are in life right now to have clothes on your back every single day, clean water every single day, you're one of the richest people in the world. You're one of the wealthiest people in the world. So, Based on the assumption that we are all affluent, this is also an invitation from a man in prison whose heart is free to consider that our affluence might actually be the primary breeding ground for our anxiety and worry, because our affluence gives us the opportunity to purchase comfort and to purchase the illusion that we're in control of our lives. And eventually, that illusion is going to expose itself to us. In other words, we live in a fallen world. We live in a bit of a prison, and yet we're expecting it to function as a honeymoon suite to us. And therefore, we become more subject, not less, to worry and anxiety and so on. The market tanks, the kids rebel. The brain stops working in the way that it used to. The diagnosis comes and instead of it being an, oh, bummer, rejoice in the Lord, it it, it crushes us, it ruins us, it it completely unravels our sense of identity. And, And Paul's answer to this is, be reasonable, learn how to think. Start with this, Jesus said it, the maker of everything. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, in this age, in this fallen condition and nature of things, you will have trouble. So, over half of the world's current population, it's around 7 billion people, about half of those 7 billion people live at or below the poverty line and uh, I was actually speaking with a counselor about the nature of anxiety and depression globally. Where is it most concentrated, my question was, to to this trained counselor. And the counselor said, strikingly, the most affluent places in the world, places like Japan, places like the United States, those are the places where anxiety and depression are epidemic. But the third world, the developing world, places where people don't know if they're going to eat today, don't know if their children are going to die tomorrow. Anxiety and depression are more or less a non-issue. And why is that? Because the expectations of a fallen world are reasonable. There's no illusion there. And Paul, from his oppressed place in life, is experiencing such clarity about the nature of things right now that he is free from worry and anxiety and panic, it seems. You know, we've go, if you go back a few centuries, you take a look at the books that were written uh, by people who lived in a world, specifically by Christians who lived in a world that did not have antibiotics, that lived in a world that did not have the medical uh, technologies that we have now that lived in a world where life expectancy was 30 years old, where infant mortality rates were extraordinarily high, and you look at the masterpieces from those seasons of history from people like Augustine, and and, and Calvin, and Luther, and Spurgeon even, and, and Jonathan Edwards, and you'll see the common thread that all of these people expected suffering to be a normal part of everyday life. And why did they expect that? Because their minds were formed by Scripture, not by affluence, an affluence culture, which can sometimes cloud vision and lead us to think in unreasonable ways with unreasonable expectations. So, do you know John Bunyan, who who wrote, you know, Pilgrim? essentially didn't have an education past sixth grade. Bunyan wrote Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress, one of the greatest Christian masterpieces ever written, Allegory of the Christian Faith. He wrote that from prison. Did you know that John Donne, the, 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 the masterful Christian poet, wrote his very, very best and most enduring works while he was quarantined with the plague? You know, did you know that, that the vast majority of the Psalms were written by people who were in the middle of deep, deep duress and distress. You know, Russ is, has said before to our congregation, lament frees us to be honest about how we feel. Lament, Russ has said, is a necessary skill in the art of rejoicing. You can only rejoice to the degree that you've understood and felt and allowed yourself to, to be reasonable about the darkness of a fallen world. So we worry because we're trying to purchase our comfort and we're trying to purchase the illusion that we're in control when we're not. Never have been, never will be, but Jesus is, and that's the good thing. And That brings us to the second question, how do we confront our worry? And again, Paul's answer is, reason with yourself, think, Paul says says in verse 6, do not be anxious. The Greek word here is merimnate, which means to fixate upon something, to, to meditate upon something, to marinate in something, to obsess about it. Whatever our obsession is, is going to determine whether or not we're driven by fear and worry. If we're obsessed about something that could easily be lost or could eventually be lost, our lives are going to be consumed with worry and fear. If our obsession is with the one thing that can't be lost, the person and enduring and everlasting work of Jesus Christ, there's the answer to your fear and worry. There's the answer. I mean, Jim Elliot, the, the martyred missionary, you know, said this before he died. He said, he is no fool who gives up or who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. That's reasonable thinking. What does Paul say? Whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy, think about these things. Get them in your head so they can travel to your heart. Worry is a sign that we are allowing ourselves to be discipled by our fears instead of allowing ourselves to be discipled by the person and work and loveliness and excellence and praiseworthiness of Jesus Christ. You know, this fixation it, it manifests itself in the form of our many, many what ifs. Well, what if? Well, what if? Well, what if somebody tries to calm us down? Well, what if counselor tries to calm us down? Well, what if? What if? What if? What if? Uh, spouse or friend tries to calm us down? What if? What if? What if? What if? What's on the other side of the what if? That's the thing we're looking to as our functional Lord and Savior. So when I was in seminary, when I was in my early to mid-20s, uh, my what if was, you know, health. What if my health crashes? I was a, I was a hypochondriac. And I, I was telling you earlier service, my doctor was sitting right there, and he's, I'm thinking, he's, he's thinking, what do you mean by was a hypochondriac? Um, but I was, I thought that I had these, you know, terminal diseases and so on, which obviously I didn't. There's a man named Jerem Bars was a professor there, still is, uh, who, for whatever reason, just loved me really well and took me under his wing, became sort of like a father, big brother figure to me, and one day he just said, Scott, you know, I was asking all these what-ifs about my health, he says, Scott, okay, I, I've been patient with you, haven't I? <laughs> yes, you have, Jerram. Um, So I, I just want to encourage you to stop it. <laughs> um He says, you're wearying me, and you're wearying yourself by listening to yourself too much. He says, I want to encourage you to start talking to yourself more than you listen to yourself on these things. It's just another way of saying be reasonable, and I I was seeing a counselor at that time. His name is Hal, and what Hal said is, you know, like like some counselors, some therapists are going to say, you know, replace your... Your unhappy thoughts with, with happy thoughts. What I'm going to tell you is this. Don't think happy thoughts at all. Here's your assignment next week. Don't think happy thoughts. Think horrible, horrible thoughts. Meditate on what actually is your very worst imagined what if. What is your worst case scenario? Think those horrible thoughts. Stare them in the face and process them in light of what is good and excellent and lovely and true. A couple of examples in Scripture about how this is done. You know, Paul talks about how he demolishes strongholds by taking every thought captive to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Isn't that something else? A man who writes four letters from prison talks about taking, essentially functioning as the warden Who has the authority to imprison his own unreasonable thoughts and expectations about what life is supposed to give you? I take my thoughts captive and I make them obedient. I subject them, I enslave them to the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ, who slays worry, who slays fear, who slays panic. Romans chapter 8, what does he say? We face, you know, to my counselor's counsel, we face death. We don't deny it. We don't ignore it. We don't try to purchase the illusion that we can avoid it. We face it all day long. That's our assignment, and we're not afraid. Because there's no condemnation in Christ, and there's no separation from Him. Do not fear. Why? Because he's always with you. He's always for you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You don't believe it? It's still true. Still true. Nothing can separate us. He says we're more than conquerors facing death. And as we're facing death, we're conquerors. King David, another one, the 42nd Psalm, he's experienced being betrayed by his own son Absalom, who's trying to steal his throne, slandering his name, betting his wives. I mean, the fact that David had wives is a problem, but nonetheless, Absalom is taking David's wives and concubines to the roof and and having his way with them in public as, as a way of mocking his father. That's what he's experienced from his son. And then King Saul has got a bounty on his head. He's a refugee and asylum seeker for for so much of his young adult life because King Saul, the narcissist, is terrified of him and threatened by his talents and likability and handsomeness and so on. And what does David do in the context of such things? He preaches sermons to his soul, reasonable sermons. Why so downcast, O my soul? put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. David confronts a heart full of fear with prayers full of God. That's what Jenny Owens was talking about a moment ago. When we have a big God, (laughs) these temporary Afflictions start to assume what, what Paul called a light and momentary quality about them. That's in 2 Corinthians 4. In light of and in comparison to the weight of the glory of Christ and the, the weight of the promises of Christ. You know, worry is nothing more and nothing less than a, 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 an intentional act of meditation on potential worst-case scenarios. And that brings us to the final question. What about those worst-case scenarios? And, And the answer to that is it really depends on the context in which they are being placed. You know, I think it's important to acknowledge that Paul is writing only to a specific group of people. It's to the people that he says are those who are in Christ or in the Lord, whose names are written in the book of life. People who belong to Jesus, people who've transferred their trust away from their self, away from their own goodness, away from their, you know, fill in the blank. They've transferred their functional trust to the the finished work of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life on your behalf. He he died, uh, you know, the death that you deserved to die and and, and and was separated from God so that you'd never have to be. He rose victorious from the dead. He did all of that for you. When you transfer your trust there, it, it, it gives you this irrevocable irrevocable, uh, status of of being in Christ, of of belonging, of safety, of protection, of no condemnation, of no separation. It gives you that sense of belonging forever. If that describes you, you are in Christ, then your worst case scenario long term is resurrection and everlasting life. That's as bad as it's going to get for you. Ultimately, that's as bad as it's going to be every day better than the day before for the rest of eternity. I wish I had time to unpack Revelation 21 to, to, to justify what I just said biblically, exegetically from the Greek, every day, not, not only as good as, but better than the day before, because Jesus is continually making all things new. Everything's getting newer and newer. Everything's getting younger and younger. Everything's getting stronger and stronger every day, world without end. That's your, that's your worst-case scenario, but if you are outside of Christ… I have no hope to offer you, no hope. If you are outside of Christ, your current worst-case scenario will one day seem like paradise in comparison to an eternity without Jesus. The good news there is it's not too late. The good news there is there can be a place at the table of Jesus Christ for you as well if you transfer your trust. Receive the gift. Forsake your pride. Go to him in humility. and Just express, I need you. Nothing in my hands I bring. That's it. It's free. But Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. That's the phrase I want to camp out on here. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. With thanksgiving. Is Paul saying what it it looks like he's saying? That that you should actually thank God before God confirms that his answer is going to be yes to whatever you're asking him for? Or that his answer is going to be no to whatever it is you're... You should thank him regardless? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Remember where he's writing this. From prison. And trust your fears, your worries, your anxieties... To the context in which you live, the story of God which is unfolding and which promises a glorious future. So, um, several years ago, I buried a man. I officiated the funeral of a man named Brian who died from terminal cancer at age 35. And as I walked with him through his dying days, it was remarkable how much more peace he started to experience the closer he got to his death, how much more joy, how much more he was focusing on me and what what my needs were, and less on his own. And I said, what is your secret, man? Like, what is going on? You're about to leave behind two young kids and a a young widow, and, and you're about to lose your life, which must feel like it's just getting started. And he said, bottom line, Philippians 4, I have learned to thank God for the good that I cannot see. Because if I were able to see and know everything that God does right now, I think it would all make me pretty happy." Confronting a heart full of fear with prayers that are full of God. You know, Kara Tippetts, who is a prolific blogger who, in, in like manner, in her 30s died from cancer, left behind a bunch of kids, and, and her widower, Jason, just a few years ago. Her last blog post, which she asked uh, you know, her husband or somebody else to, to not release until after she died, but she wrote this before she died to be released after she died. It's her last post, you can find it on her website, which is still live, called Mundane Faithfulness. It's called, Letter to My Readers Upon My Death. And in that essay, she says, it seems impossible that this journey has finally come to an end, but I've done gone and flown away to the land of no more tears. Won't you rejoice with me? My pain is gone, my fears are calmed. I'm, the, I'm, the sovereign, I'm in the sovereignly good hands of Jesus, he is my forever enough now. What bliss I'm sure I'm enjoying. She wrote that while she was dying. She didn't send it from heaven. She wrote it, but, but, but she invited the future down into her present. That's what we mean when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're inviting the future of God into our present experience to shape the way that we process and live in our present experience. We are more than conquerors. Worry-free, even in the face of death, this young woman was. You know, the great man Job, after he lost everything, his money, his business, his property, his children, his wife's respect, his friend's loyalty, what does he say? What I had always feared, it has come upon me. But in the context of actually living inside of his actual worst-case scenario that happened to him, he says this, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Good news. The Redeemer that Job looked ahead in time toward is the same Redeemer that we look back in time toward. And we truly know, no speculation, time, space, history up from death. You know, as Anne Lamott says, we are, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. In the end, Easter wins. Easter is the last word in, in that Good Friday Easter narrative. That is enough, is it not, to turn even a prison cell into a present-day honeymoon suite. Will you allow your redemptive imagination to take you there? Will you allow your reasonableness to take over and take your thinking there that your heart may follow? Let's pray together. Lord, this is um, this is such foreign teaching to talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves to to confront our deepest fears rather than to ignore them and shove them under the rug and try to purchase them away. Father, this is real life, everyday stuff. Whether we are in the third world or the first world, whether we're in the developed world or the developing world, whether we are just scraping by or whether we're living on top of the world like the writer of Ecclesiastes was, we need you and we cannot do it on our own. And how wonderful, Lord, that you address our worries, our fears, our anxieties, our panic, not with scolding, not with shaming, not with lectures, but with an invitation, where you say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord, teach us what it means even now at your table to find rest there because of you. Father, teach us to confront our hearts full of fear with prayers that are full of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.